The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we continue our study of Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. And our study today is in the last two verses of this first chapter. And it ends with the apostle telling the church about his prayers for them. Now we learned in the first letter that prayer is an integral part of our worship. Paul urged people in the church to be people of prayer both publicly and privately. And he commended and commanded the Thessalonians for their prayers. And he told them to pray without ceasing. If they expected to be holy, sanctified people, then they must do it by the means that God has appointed. We are never going to glorify God and be sanctified unless we use the very things that God said that you must use to accomplish it. And prayer is one of those means that enables us to be sanctified. Now, in the end of the first chapter, Paul modeled what he told others to do. He was a man of prayer. And in his letters, you'll find that there are frequent pauses to express a prayer for the people or to express praises to the one who called him to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he writes then in verses 11 and 12 of this first chapter, Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said he always prayed for them. Without ceasing, he prayed for them. Now, strictly speaking, these two verses are not a prayer, but they are an expression of the way that that Paul prayed for them. And he told them how he asked the Lord to work in them. He prayed for their successful Christian living, to be counted worthy of their calling in Christ, And that's just another way of saying that he prayed for their sanctification and that would result in the glory of Christ that he would be seen in others through them. Now, in today's message, I want to examine the way that Paul prayed and his petitions that he brought before God as he considered these very persecuted people. And the way that he prayed was the most beneficial method for the service to which they were called. And we'll notice this as we examine his petitions, that they were very much unlike the way that most of us approach God in our prayers. Now, you'll notice uh, up in verse number 5, as he did in verse number 11, he spoke of their worthiness. In verse number 5, he talked about the trials that they faced because of their faith. And he said, this is a test that God puts you through to prove your worthiness. This It's a test to... to uh, See about uh, what you're made of, so to speak, your metal, to establish an evaluation of how, how deeply rooted you are in the faith. And then in the fourth verse, he talked about patience in the faith. Patience is endurance, it's steadfastness to hold on to what they believed, and they were tough. 
Persecution caused the faithless to turn back, but these people hadn't turned back. And so the apostle acknowledges it is, in fact, very, very hard to live for Christ. But he assured them that they were on God's side and God would stand with them and God would repay those who made living their faith very difficult. So he promised them that they were sure to rest from their troubles. He said, your future is secure. And this is Paul's way of getting them to focus on the big picture. Not, not to put their minds on what's happening right then and all the troubles that they're in now, but to see the big picture. The focus of the end of their faith is realized in the prize that we have of eternal life. Living for Christ is worth it no matter how hard it is. And so this is the encouragement for Christians not to give up too soon. And if their faith was real, they wouldn't give up. And as I've said, there's evidence here in Paul's letter that they hadn't given up. When we survey the previous verses that Paul wrote, we're more convinced that we really do need to be on God's side. I mean, who, who wants to face mighty angels in flaming fire? Who wants to face everlasting destruction that comes on those that don't believe? Now, we don't serve God because of fear. I mean, that's not our real motivator. We don't serve Him out of fear, but a fear is the motivation. You'll find plenty of that in the verses that we talked about last week. But now that Paul has uh, emphasized their glorious future, and he's used that to motivate their patience in the faith, now it's time to bring these people back to the present. What's going on right now? And so in verse number 11, he says, Wherefore, or because of this, because your future is secure, and because there is no eternal harm that will come to you, you need to remember that God is working in you right now. What are you to do right now? There is a great work for you to accomplish while you're living in this world. And so you see, we can't rest uh, uh, and get too carried away with our, with our troubles. We can't get too carried away with the future. We can't think so much about heaven, although we ought to. But we ought not to bury ourselves in the future or bury ourselves in our problems that we forget to do what we're supposed to do. We need to be busy now. Trials can't stop us. They shouldn't stop us. And we should remember why we have a future in the first place. Our feet are on the pavement today. We are in the world today. And our lives are saved for an intention by God. And that intention is to glorify Jesus Christ. How many times do we see that in Scripture? Your purpose in life is to glorify Jesus Christ. And notice again how he puts this, that our God would count you worthy of this calling. And he means that your life should be lived in a consistent way with the works that God has done in your heart. So Paul's message to believers is that he's not saying this is the way that you get saved. Uh, this is a message to believers. This is not what you do in order to gain your faith. This is not what you do to prove your worth to God. No, he couldn't say that. He couldn't say, if you do these things, this is the way that you'll be saved. By your efforts, by what you do. Because he, he, he wouldn't say that because there's none of us that before our salvation has any worth to God. So he can't say, prove your worthiness, walk worthy, and then you'll be saved. No, because before we're saved, we're essentially worthless. We are depraved sinners that are enmity, enmity with God. The scripture says we are hostile to God in all of his ways. Our worth is not in what we do. 
Our worth is because of what Christ did for us and continues to do in us. And so what Christ did was to purchase unworthy sinners with his own precious blood. And folks, his worth gives us our worth. We have value only in this. We have value in Christ. And so whenever we think about our salvation, we never look back at anything that we did because even our faith was given by God. Now Paul says, we always pray for you. We pray. Emphasize for a second there, we. He means him, him and his two companions. That's Saul, or Silas and Timothy. We pray for you. And all three of these men were men of prayer. And their hearts were always attuned to the greatest needs of believers. And I want us to think about that first today. What are the needs of believers? What is it that we need the most? And I think we'll see that what Paul said believers need is quite different from the things that most Christians pray for. So let's look at this first. The contrast of Paul's prayer. What is the contrast between the way that Paul prayed and the way that we usually pray or the way that most Christians pray? And I think that we could sum it up in one short statement. Paul prayed for their character, not their cravings. Paul prayed for their character, not their cravings. Paul prayed for the development of good Christian character, both morally and spiritually. He didn't pray for anything that they craved materially. I want you to think what your prayer life is like. What are the things that you pray for? Well, I'm sure that most of you pray for yourselves. You pray for your health. You pray about your troubles. You pray for your family and you pray about your job. In this area where expenses are rising... Some of you probably frequently pray about where you live. Am I going to have to move out of my house? Are they going to raise the rent too much? Is, is it going to be way too expensive for me to live? And so you pray about those things. Some of you might pray about a new car. Some to figure out how you're going to survive with your finances. Those are legitimate needs. And we know that God is interested in the minute details of our lives. We know that there's nothing about us that escapes God's attention And I don't disagree that those things are legitimate. But are they the highest priority? And I also know that James said we don't get what we want because we pray about the wrong things. And so if you take time to make your list and look at your prayer petitions, would you find that most of them are mostly selfish? Well, I'd like us to consider the way that Paul prayed. When he said, I always pray for you, What was his prayers concerned with? What types of things did he pray for? And we don't really need to speculate about that because there are so many examples of Paul's prayers that are in the scriptures. So we're going to do this first today. We're going to take just a very short tour of a few of Paul's letters to see what he prayed for. Now, take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul told people to pray without ceasing, so we can't say it would be unusual to find him praying in the middle of writing a letter. He didn't say, preach without ceasing. And some of you are probably happy that he didn't say that. He didn't say, write letters without ceasing. He didn't even say, witness without ceasing. He said, pray without ceasing. And in his letters, he showed this is what he did. 
Now understand that all the churches that Paul dealt with were under duress. It's not like there were these little havens of Christianity in any place where Christians weren't bothered. In Acts chapter 28, the Jews at Rome said, Christians are spoken against everywhere. Paul said, we, we are considered the off-scouring of the earth. And throughout the entire history of the church, it's been this way. There's always been persecution. Our country in the past 250 years has been an anomaly for lack of persecution. But we do know that many of the first settlers that came to this country came here because of persecution. So we would expect that we would find at the top of Paul's letters, at the top or our top of his list of petitions, we would expect to find he would pray about this, that he would pray for deliverance from persecution. But we can't find those prayers because, Paul said, suffering for Christ is to be expected. He said that's intended. God brings trials into our lives to increase our faith. So we needn't expect to find prayers from Paul where he asked God to end all suffering. We also know that believers in Thessalonica were poor. Believing in Christ brought poverty as Christians were pushed out of their jobs because of their faith. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, when we were studying the seven churches of Asia, we talked about Thyatira. The church in that city had Christians that were removed from their jobs because they were forced out of the trade guilds. They wouldn't worship the patron gods of the guilds. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote about the deep poverty of the churches in Macedonia. And so we would expect that his prayers would be about that. That he would pray about this, their material needs. God, please do something about this poverty. But he didn't. Because poverty is a method of showing total faith in God to supply their needs. That's a building experience to the Apostle Paul. Now, I'm sure you're in Ephesians 1 by now. So look at verses 15 through 17. He says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, you might want to mark that down. He didn't cease to give thanks for them. That means he's always praying for them. And underline this, what did he pray for? He prayed that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Those are his petitions in this prayer. Now turn a couple of pages to chapter 3. This is a little longer prayer that starts in verse number 14. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees... Unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now let's list the petitions in this prayer. Number one, he praised that they would be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. The second petition he praised, that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. Thirdly, 
rooted in love, to understand the abounding love of Christ. And then the fourth petition is filled with the fullness of God. Now turn a few more pages to Philippians. That's the next letter, Philippians. And in chapter 1, we find another prayer. If you look at verses 9 through 11, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. What are the petitions? Now you may not have time to write them down so you can just underline them in your Bible. Number one, love to abound in knowledge. Second petition, approve things that are excellent. That just means choose those things that are best for you. Petition number three, sincere without offense. And that's their holy, blameless behavior. And then number four, filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now let me give you just one more example. The next letter, if you want to go to that, is Colossians. And look at chapter 1 and verse number 9. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease... To pray for you and to desire and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power and all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. What are his petitions? Number one, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and wisdom and understanding. Number two, to walk worthy. Does that sound familiar? Number three, fruitful in good works. Number four, increasing in the knowledge of God. And number five, strengthened for patience and long-suffering. Now, I could go into the next verse. That talks about being thankful. But you see, all of these prayers... All of these prayers focus on the same needs. This is just a small sampling of what Paul prayed for the churches. He said in 2 Thessalonians that he always prayed for them. What did he pray for? There you see it. Now you take that and you list your prayer petitions and you compare it to the Apostle Paul's. What do you pray for? And the conclusion must be that all the things that we pray for are so far down on Paul's list, they are such lower priority that Paul doesn't even mention them. Each of his prayers is a sanctification issue. Each petition is a sanctification issue. Why? Because he believes that the greatest need is to be what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that is to be sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. Sanctified in every part of them. Now, do you think this may be the reason there are so few good Christians today? Is this the reason there are so many unwise, unfaithful, unholy, unfruitful, unknowledgeable Christians it may very well be that our prayers are never for our sanctification. And so we have no strength, we have no power, we have no knowledge, no holiness, because we never pray for it. Now, the most popular religion in the world today 
and mostly in this country as well, is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And what do they believe? Well, they believe that God exists as the genie in the sky to satisfy all their cravings. That he exists to make us wealthy, to be our Pedro, to make all of our wildest dreams come true. Good Christian character is not their concern. They don't care about that. There's not one mention, though, of material cravings in Paul's prayers. Not one time does he say those things. He desired none of that for the churches because he knew that preoccupation with the world and material goods would keep their affections on the world. And so preoccupation with the world is never an occupation for Christians. And so this is the reason that Paul wrote, set your affections on things above and not on the things of this earth. And let me just put it another way for you. This comes from the namesake of Christianity. And who would that be? From Jesus Christ himself. And he said, take no thought for any of the things the prosperity gospel prays for. He said, don't seek those things. What did he say? Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see where Paul got the idea of what we should pray for? Pray for character. Pray for holiness. Pray for righteousness. I read a great interpretive quote a few days ago. God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now, we don't need. Now, I wish I believed that as I should. Amazon would have few of my dollars if I really did believe that. I mean, you see Paul's focus? Paul's prayer is about the kingdom of God. His prayer is about what are you as a Christian doing in God's kingdom? There, there's no prayer here for how we can settle into the world and be buried beneath all of our stuff. Oh, this is about getting people prepared for the work that God has called them to do. God called you to your salvation. He has an intention for you. You are to be sanctified. And so this is what he prays for, always praying for, the different ways that will cause you to be sanctified. Now let me go on to the second part of what this passage is about. The second part is about the calling of God's people. He prayed that our God would count you worthy of this calling. Now whenever you see calling used this way in the scripture, almost always it refers to the effectual call of the Spirit in the gospel of Christ. It is God's calling. It is a God-initiated call. The intent of this call is to separate you from the world. You were lost. You were in sin. You were chosen in eternity past. And this calling is to bring that election of the past into the reality of the present so that God's chosen people obtain their salvation. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, Paul said, this is the reason that I endure hardships of preaching, all those things that I go through. It's because the elect must hear to obtain their salvation. Now, when the gospel is preached in that way, the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and makes it effectual to the hearer. And he calls the person who hears the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is not the same indiscriminate call that goes out when we preach in a congregation like this. 
people come to church, you're all sitting here in the congregation, and I preach, and I make exhortations, and I do it to all of you without distinction. All of you hear the same message, but then for some reason, someone responds to that message. Others that are sitting around don't respond. Why did that one person believe what was said? Well, that's because the Holy Spirit spoke in a different way. I'm not capable of getting anything other than an indiscriminate call, but the Holy Spirit knows the heart of every person. The Holy Spirit gives a direct call, a specific call, a distinct call, and that call penetrates the person's heart and regenerates the hearer. And that person responds because it was an effectual call. They wouldn't respond on their own. They will never respond unless the Holy Spirit calls them. And when he calls, they always respond. Now, Paul knew these people in Thessalonica had heard the gospel in that way. And the evidence of it was their belief. The evidence is they're holding out faithful. They haven't departed the faith despite all the trials that they encounter. And so the one who responds to the effectual call of the Spirit is a person who never drops out. He can't drop out because the Bible guarantees his perseverance in the faith. He's always preserved in the faith. Well, if that's true, why does Paul even need to pray for them? Why, why all these prayers for them? Well, it's a very simple equation. They're not yet perfect. They're still growing Christians. They need to grow up in Christ. They need to be sanctified. They need to increase their effectiveness for Christ. And so Paul addresses people that he has confidence they have believed. And he says, God's going to avenge your adversaries. God is working in you. God called you. And what did he call them to? Well, he called them to a high calling. That calling is to come out of the world, to separate from the world, to be above the world in their behavior. This is not about, about just for purposes that are, that are above mere animal life. No, this is about a preoccupation of the mind. This is about what you are supposed to be. Lose that preoccupation with the world and center your affections in Jesus Christ. So we have here then a heavenly calling to be made like Christ to do His work. It's a call to holiness. A call to sanctification. And it was all begun with their initial faith in Jesus Christ. This is the call to worthiness. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. Colossians 1.10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There you see it, walk worthy, walk worthy, walk worthy. God gave you a name. God called you by His grace. God gave His Son to die for you. God made you heirs of the riches of Christ. You are called the children of God. You are called saints. Now, if He gave you those titles, and you sit here today, and you say you are a believer, that you are a child of God, then you show the title. Show that the name is deserved. And I'm telling you, it's hard to do, it's hard to convince anyone who you are, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if there's little to nothing in your life that shows it. Do you understand how many people say they're Christians, 
Not hard to find somebody who'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. Why, why is that name given? Why, why call them Christians? Well, it goes back to the early days in the New Testament to people in Antioch. Why were they called Christians? Well, there's a list of reasons. First is they believed. They followed Christ. I mean, seriously, we're talking about people who follow Christ. I know that's a novel concept for some Christians. They followed Christ. In Acts 11, it says they were taught. It says they assembled. You want to write that one down too. They went to church. They loved the company of other people called Christians. Now you follow that through and you find that they're involved in good works. You follow it through and they gave offerings to poor believers in Jerusalem. Follow it through. You find their people that loved. You follow it through. You find their people of different moral and spiritual character. These are people that you can pick out among the neighbors. They're the different people in the neighborhood. They were different people at work. In a sea of unbelievers, these are people that stand out. They are different. They walked worthy of their calling. Now today, the name Christian, you call yourself Christian, barely distinguishes anyone if at all. Barely does, if at all. So we need to put an adjective in front of those who call themselves Christians. They are nominal Christians. What does that mean? Well, these are people that use the name, but they don't look anything like Christ. And why? Because Christ didn't do anything in them. Now, you, you can mark this down. This is the fear that we have for those who aren't living for Christ. If I look out over our congregation, and I know the lives of some of the people in our congregation, this is the fear that I have when I see them not living for Christ, not obeying Christ. They are nominal Christians. In other words, they are not real Christians. Now, the truth is, we're, we were all once unworthy. We were all without God. We were all without hope in the world. But by God's marvelous mercy and grace upon the unworthy, He reached down to us. He made us worthy. We were unworthy because of all of our sin. They were made worthy by Jesus Christ who knew no sin. Now, in effect, Paul tells us to look at the cross. Look at Jesus Christ. There's where we find our worthiness. He died to make us worthy. And that's how we achieve all worth we have in God's eyes. Now let me make a theological point for you. This is also sanctification. But what I've just told you is a different type of sanctification. We call it positional. And this is because when you first trusted Christ, he made you worthy to be his child. He saved you, who made you a citizen of his kingdom... And you don't need any other credentials than those. You can't improve on that kind of sanctification. But in our verses, Paul's not talking about positional sanctification. He's not talking about that initial faith in Christ where you can never be moved from that. You're always going to be saved. There's no doubt of that. He's not speaking of that. He's speaking of your progressive sanctification. That's the practical side of it as God works in you to make you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, every day of your Christian life. And that brings me to this third observation, and that is the confidence of God's power. Confidence in God's power that God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of his power. 
Is there any mistake here who is responsible for your sanctification? If you're not being sanctified, something's wrong because God's power works in His people. God intends it to fulfill His purposes. Salvation is begun in God. It proceeds in God. It is finished in God. Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. Paul wrote this in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident to this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, you need to mark that one in your Bible. God sanctifies his people. He will perform it. You know, there's so much argument on this point. It's so misunderstood. People miss this. God began the work in you. It wasn't you. It wasn't your decision. Although by His grace you did decide. But it wasn't your choice because the Scriptures clearly say He chose you. He regenerated you. He called you. He gave you faith. And the Bible is very clear. The work began with Him. The good work began with Him. And what does it say that He will do? He will perform it. Since He's the one who initiated, carries it out, He is the one who performs it and He will do it until the day you see Christ. So our confidence is in God to do it, not in ourselves. And so if you put yourself any place in that process, you steal God's glory. And looking at my life and yours, our too often propensity for failure, how could we have any confidence if any of this depended on us? But we had to be reminded again of how to walk worthy. We find it in the prayers that we read earlier. We receive more knowledge of Christ. We're diligent to do good works. We are strengthened with his might in the inner man, in the inner being. All of this is done through God's means. As I said in the very beginning, we have to work according to God's means. And the means is the word. The means is prayer. And the means is self-examination. We walk worthy. By standing up in trials. We don't compromise our good convictions. And how many people that are nominal Christians are compromising their convictions if they have any? They go on living in their sin. They're... I don't understand that. I don't know. A good Christian, one who follows the Lord, desires unity of the faith among the members of the church... You see, this is the casual attitude of feel-good Christianity. That's what nominal Christian is. It's just a feel-good Christianity. It's, it's about prosperity where there is no category of sin. There is no holiness. It's an all-self-esteem gospel. And it never produces the first convert who is worthy. Never one who walks worthy. Our confidence is not in us. It's in the power of God. Let me comment on this phrase in the text, and fulfill the pleasure of all his goodness. The good pleasure, that means your desires, you desire goodness. Isn't that what a real Christian is? A real Christian is one who desires goodness. And and, and this is when your will lines up with God's will. And you don't want to get that backwards. Don't ever get it backwards because too often our prayers are to line God up with what we want. And we're convinced if we want it, then it must be God's will. And that leads to materialism. It leads to thinking we need what we don't need. The good pleasure of his goodness is to have the same desire as God desires. How do you become content then 
in a world with all the troubles that you live in? How can you be content? Align your will with God's will. And then you're always going God's direction. The psalmist wrote, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Did you know this? God wants you to have all the desires of your heart. And the Bible says you will have them if your desires are his desires. Now finally look at verse number 12 in our text. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four is the crowning. The crowning is God's prize. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. The name. Isn't that important? The name. Think what comes to mind when you say a name. If I say, do you know Tabor? The first thing that happens is you get an image of Tabor in your mind. First, there's the picture that comes to the mind. Next, you think of all the interactions that you've had with Tabor. Maybe you think of all the work that he does in church. You, you may think of the conversations that you've had with him. You think of his character. You remember the things that you've seen him do. You even think of his associates. You think of Melissa. You think of Tate and Thad. If you ever had a bad experience with Tabor, that's probably the first thing that comes to your mind because that's the way our human hearts are made, isn't it? Always looking for something bad, always looking for something to talk about. Our minds are geared that way. In other words, the name Tabor forms impressions in your mind, whether those are good or bad. And the same is true of Christ. That when you speak the name of Christ, up pops all the things that you know and you've read about Christ. And I would submit those impressions are always good because no one who thinks of Jesus has any reason to think ill of him. But there is another dimension to this, isn't there? A whole other dimension. Impressions of Christ are also formed by those who use his name. Now follow that through. We follow it into a, a deeper way into this text. Colossians says that we're to walk worthy of the Lord. This text speaks of walking worthy. So what are you called? You're a Christian, right? You're using that name. You're called by the name of Christ. Let me give you a couple of verses that say this, this is what it is when you, when you say that you are a Christian. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So everything that you do from the point that you say you are a Christian reflects on Jesus Christ because you're using His name. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. And what? Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You have the name of Christ, so what are you supposed to do? Stop sinning. You stop sinning because every time that you do, you reflect on the name of Jesus Christ. You're using his name. So you call yourself by the name of Jesus. Everything that you do bears on his name. And so when people hear you say, I'm a Christian, what comes to their mind? Well, often they think, you don't look anything like what I've heard about Christ. You don't look anything like what I've heard about Jesus. Was I wrong about him? 
You're using his name. Was I wrong about him? Does he, is he like you? And then on, on the other hand, I've heard this many times, thankfully, somebody say, that person must be a Christian. You can see Christ in them. And what happens? Just as our text says, Christ is glorified. His good works are seen because your good works came from where? From him. And so you glorify him and they glorify him because of your good works. Christ is glorified in you. So how awful then to bear the name of Christ, use his name, and do less than glorify him. And so you have to ask, are people repulsed by my bad attitude? Are they repulsed by my filthy mouth? Are they repulsed by what they hear me say at work? Are they repulsed by my unethical practices? Are people confused because they see you in places you shouldn't be, doing things you shouldn't do? This is one of the reasons I don't do social media. You want to know why? Because there are so many that use the name of Christ that make me ashamed. How can they pretend to know Christ and act the way that they do? And then there are other Christians, and I, don't, I, I just hear this stuff, you know, I'm not on Facebook and all that stuff. You're not going to find me there, but I hear different things, and I see different things, and I see thumbs up. Somebody just said something awful, despicable, not Christian at all. And somebody say, thumbs up. Here's the problem. All those people that say that they're Christians reflect badly on me. Because I also use the name of Christ. And so every Christian gets buried beneath what you do. Do you know that? You cast doubt, you cast shadows, you drag the name of Christ and every Christian who claims the name of Christ through the mud if you don't live a holy life. I love this statement by J. Hampton Keefley. Keefley was past president of Dallas Theological Seminary. This is what he wrote. To glorify his name means demonstrating to the world what the person and work of Christ is like so that he comes to be held in great honor and esteem because of who he is and all he has accomplished and will accomplish. Does your life do that? Is Christ glorified in you? Do you crown Jesus king? Or are you busy every day stripping him of his royalty? Are you stripping him of the beauty of holiness? And then there's this corollary, and you... In him. He is in you. And you are in him. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 7. And to you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. With his mighty angels. You according to God's promise. Will rest with him. Because in the future you will be glorified with him. You will reign with him. I wonder sometimes about. How Christians live and how that's all going to work out. How's that going to play out? They're going to reign with Christ. Well, thank God I'm not the one who decides these things. He's the one who purifies. Revelation 22 verse 5 talks about that life. It says, and there shall be no night there. This is heaven. They need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. At the end of his life, Paul wrote this next verse. After his faithful service, 
This is what he said about his life after he had surrendered body, soul, spirit to Christ. 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do you see how Paul brought the Thessalonians out of the future? Brought them out of the future, back down to the present life, back down to earth, right now, right here. He says, you must walk worthy. The view, of course, is towards your future life. Glorify Christ here and now, and you will be crowned and glorified with Christ later. But let me conclude by saying that you're already glorified with Christ. Did you know that? You're already glorified with him. You know it. If you're a true child of God, you know it. But the world doesn't know it. They, they haven't learned this. You will be glorified with Christ. You are glorified with Christ. Your citizenship is already in heaven with Christ. They can't see it. They don't know it. Unless you do this. Unless you walk worthy. By the grace of God, walk worthy so that people see Christ in you. That's our desire for the Brian Baptist Church. Walk worthy. Never bring reproach upon the name of Christ. May they see Christ in us, all that he is in the fullness of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We need to confess our sins. We know that we're not walking as we should. Lord, I pray that you'd make that the desire of our hearts, that we would strive every single day with the help of your Holy Spirit to live holy, righteous lives. Lord, may we never bring reproach upon the name of Christ. Help us to keep, it, to, uh, to keep that in our minds at the forefront all of the time, constantly praying for the right things, praying for our sanctification, praying for the knowledge of Christ, praying for the glory of Christ, praying to be worthy of the calling by which you have called us. Lord, make us a different people, separate people, ones that the whole world notices something very, very different about us. As your word says, may we live in a way that others ask a reason of the hope of our calling. Thank you, Lord, for your word and what you teach us. Help us to pay attention, to obey what's been taught. This is what Christian people do. They hear the word. They look into the word as a mirror. They see themselves and they see the corrections that need to be made and they do it. And that's because they are real believers in you. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org